Before we get started, I do want to reach out to all of you guys listening and um, ask a small favor. And that's if you guys could go online and rate and review this podcast. Your input is far more important than you could probably imagine. Uh, Much like Instagram, podcasts have algorithms and your reviews are a major contributor to helping these things grow. Uh, So if you don't mind, take two minutes and just rate and review the show. I would greatly appreciate it. Now let's get to the show. Chris Considine has had quite the automotive journey. He raced go-karts as a kid while working his way up to the open-wheel levels of the junior formulas, but that's not all. He's worked as a reporter at Le Mans alongside his automotive journalist father, but it was while working in Phoenix, Arizona as a tire technician where Chris built his first racing simulator. That first DIY project was the basis for which CXC Simulators was born and is now responsible for producing industry-leading simulations for professional drivers and high-net-worth individuals worldwide. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Chris as he exemplifies what it means to grow a small business by way of managing expectations, knowing where the holes are, and hiring accordingly, all while creating an amazing product. These are the simple lessons that are far easier said than done, so it really is wonderful to see. CXC produces an unbelievable piece of kit. The engineering, the mechanics, and even the levels of their customer service are incredible. Do yourself a favor and visit the website linked in the show notes to see for yourself. Chris and I talk real-life cars, and he shares why he chose a Golf R as his daily driver, so definitely stick around for that. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Really appreciate you having me up here in, in Hawthorne, I Hawthorne, guess we yeah. are, technically. Lovely Hawthorne, California. Right across from uh, SpaceX. Yep. And Tesla Design Center, you said? Yeah. Yeah, it seems to be Aerospace Park up here. <laughs> so as far as design, function, technology, you're in pretty decent company. We are, yeah. <laughs> kind of accidentally. <laughs> yeah. Were you here before them? Uh, no, actually, we came in after some of it but they've expanded so much in this area yeah they've started taking over buildings all around us basically and other companies like them have moved in since we've moved in as well anybody of note um we have arch motorcycles right next to us oh sure yeah Yeah. um then we have a ring right down the street as well sure um and that's their like main campus now wow so there's a lot of technology really moving into this area this area used to be very uh old school kind of aerospace you know northrop grumman and right and so on and so forth and all these buildings were built for uh world war ii kind of uh manufacturing of aircraft i see um and now all these buildings are here and you know obviously that industry has kind of changed quite a bit right so you have all these new like kind of technology either aerospace or automotive bespoke automotive or or, you know motorcycles so on and so forth um, that are kind of filling in these buildings around here. So. Yeah, cool. So is this an old airplane hangar that this we're This is indeed. This was a Northrop Grumman uh, tooling building, actually. Yeah, I see kind of the rounded roof 
Yeah. Which is so <laughs> typical of a, of a hangar. We're always kind of worried because they're constantly testing the ground around here, the, uh, uh, underneath this building. They drill these big wells because back then they didn't really care about what they dumped in the ground. So oh, I see. depending on which building you're in, you start to worry about what's underneath the concrete, but we're safe. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. right. Okay, cool. Well, let's, let's start at the beginning. Where, um, where did you grow up? I grew up in Los Angeles. I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I grew up uh, off, off of a, a road called uh, Beverly Glen. Yeah. Um, right near Mulholland. So Okay, cool. So up in the hills. Up in the hills. Sweet. Yeah. What did mom and dad do? Uh, my mother was a uh, an executive uh, for MGM. Oh, um, cool. And my father was a motorsports journalist and racer. No kidding. Yeah. For which outlets oh, all of them okay. <laughs> it seems like um you know he moved around a lot he worked for uh auto week motor trend car and driver um wrote a few books is writing another book right now um, what's the subject uh the book right now is all the american drivers that have ever raced at lamo oh very cool so it's huge yeah <laughs> you know and in multi-volume i think he's on his fifth volume right now so it's mostly storytelling or mostly pictures or it's both actually kind of coffee it's... table style yes okay yeah it's i mean it's storytelling in the sense that he loves to capture kind of the background stuff that no one's ever heard about or knew about sure um but he also has access to just amazing photography so yeah i would imagine you get to see some really cool stuff yeah um, so yeah, he's turned into kind of an automotive historian now in his later years. Nice. Well, what's your dad's name so people can look it up? Uh, my dad's name is Tim Considine and the book he's, he's already released three volumes. Uh, the book is called Yanks at Le Mans. Um, and the next two volumes should be out soon. Well, let's talk about mom, an executive at MGM. Yeah. As a woman as well. Yeah. I mean, in the eighties. That's, that's gotta be rare. <laughs> so tell me about your mom. Uh, so my mother, uh, grew up in, uh, the film industry. Um, her mother came from the film industry and, and actually my dad did as well. Um, all on the business side, all on the business side. Yeah. Uh, my mother, um, so she was, she's, gosh, I don't even remember what she started at the very, very bottom. Right. So um, like production assistant or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think projection in projection, I think she worked in, uh, cause that's what her mother did. Um, and then she worked her way up to executive vice president at, at MGM. No kidding. Um, and she worked on some pretty big films. Um, it was all when I was really young, so I don't really remember most of it, Right. <laughs> you know? Um, I just remember that she was not there a lot and when she was there, she was there, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, you know, that kind of ended, she kind of retired in the, uh, early nineties and kind of burnt out on it. I think, I think she was like, I'm done with that pace of life. I'm just going to go do something else. <laughs> yeah. So who was the disciplinarian between the two? My dad. Yeah? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, for sure. I would sure. have maybe thought otherwise. Yeah, you know, I would have too, but I think that, that she was so good at like, this is my work life, this is my home ah, life. Ah, that's really great. She was really, really good at that. Awesome. Um, and, you know, my dad was kind of the one who was like, this is how it is. <laughs> you know? Right, right. The but right. he too came from that business as well. Okay. Um, he was an actor uh, in the 50s and 60s. Um, and his whole family is all movie business back to the teens. No kidding. Mm -hmm. So you guys have a long lineage of Los Angeles then. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm third generation. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. That's great. So where did you go to school then? 
I went to school around that area uh, for my early years. Um, and I went to school. I kind of hopped around a lot for schools. Um, I went to school in the Valley for middle school. Um, and then we moved to Beverly Hills. Uh, and I went to middle school in Beverly Hills. And then I went later to high school in Beverly Hills Okay. Uh, for two years. And then we moved to an area called Mar Vista. Um, so I went to Venice High for the last two years. So it's a bit of a culture shock yeah, there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know? I never really fit in at Beverly, honestly. I, you know, it wasn't really my thing. I mean, all the kids there were into different things and kind of had different backgrounds. And while we lived in Beverly Hills, we never really kind of fit in. <laughs> you know? Why do you think that was? Because um, I think my parents really enjoyed living in the Beverly Glen area because it was much more kind of relaxed, um, very easygoing, you know, not self-absorbed at all. Um, and everybody was kind of into their own thing, uh, that was kind of unique and interesting and exciting. Whereas in Beverly Hills, it was not that. So did your dad race at all or was he yeah. just specifically, okay. So yeah, he started he wasn't racing just a journalist. in the late fifties, uh, uh, carts actually first really before carts were like really established. Sure. Um, and then sports cars, um, and kind of never stopped until, and uh, some of my earliest memories are watching my dad racing at Ascot, uh, at a dirt oh, cool. track out here. Nice. Um, so yeah, I was exposed to racing very early on. Now, did you partake in that as well? I did. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was interesting. I was exposed to it and I was always around it, but my dad never pushed it. Um, and almost kind of went you know, if you want to do this, then you do it on your own, you know, like kind of, you know, he never opened doors overtly or made things happen or even paid for it. <laughs> you know, it really? was like, if you want to do this, you do it on your own, which in hindsight was probably a great thing, <laughs> you know? So were you finding like your own sponsors and stuff like that? Yeah. Well, in the early days, there were no sponsors, you know, at that young age, it's just, you know, find money wherever you can right. <laughs> you know couch cushions and things. yeah exactly <laughs> and you know i mean even before i was like proper racing um i was you know someone gave me a cart chassis but it was an old cart chassis and not really worth anything and then i had to like uh completely uh take it apart myself and build it back together again and find a motor and find a body and find you know like all the things i had to do by myself um, even before I had a car chassis, I had, you know, I, we lived on a hill, a street and I used to build, uh, first I'd sit on my skateboard and ride down the yeah, whole hill. I was going to say like soapbox right? derby type stuff. Yeah, exactly. And then I, he's, uh, a friend of his was a luge boarder and had these complete, you know, super complex luge, uh, uh, boards and I would go watch him. And I'd go home and take apart my skateboard and build one out of, uh, you know, two by fours and go ripping down the street at just insane speeds, wearing my dad's old helmet, you know, and my mom's hockey pads. You know? Wait, your mom played hockey? Yeah, my mom played hockey. <laughs> yeah. The only famous female hockey player I'm aware of is Linda Cohn from ESPN. Well, she she just played it <laughs> casually, like, with okay. pickup games. <laughs> you know. That's insane. That's awesome. Yeah. What, did your mom grow up playing hockey? No. Uh, <laughs> she picked it up in Los Angeles? Yeah. 
<laughs> just you said your third of, generation. So. I know. Well, they, we've always been into sports, right? My dad was a soccer player. He was Pele's photographer for some time. Holy smokes. Um, and, uh, you know, my mom and dad played uh, soccer just in a pickup, a weekly game that I remember from a, a being a baby, in fact. You know, they would just go play. Um, yeah. So it was, sports was always a thing as a for fun thing. Right. right, right. As um, an outlet. Yeah, as an outlet. So, yeah, my mom, I guess, just played hockey. <laughs> so were you, so what did you gravitate toward? Other than luge, obviously. Uh, I played soccer. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, that was the one thing that my dad was really, really actively participating in sports-wise, was he was always my coach of the team uh, until club levels and, and school uh, playing. Um, but, you know, I always played with him and he was my teacher there and and he was in racing as well it just wasn't um i think he treated motorsports and racing like he treated the uh movie business it's something to do for fun but be careful because it's you know only a few 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 make it and it's a uh it can be an ugly business, <laughs> you know. I see. So he's kind of doing it almost to protect you. Yeah. As yeah. opposed to let's see how much drive you have to yeah. do it for yourself. Well, and he did. He's like, you know, look, whatever drive you have, I will help a little bit, but I'm not going to be the pushing force. On right. This. Interesting. Yeah. You know, there's two things there. I think one is is also the the element of cost, right? Because the sure. movie business is expensive. Yeah. Racing is expensive. Yep. Soccer's cheap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and then, but also the other thing I was going to say is that dichotomy, right? Of like totally individual sport versus a team sport. Yes. That's We're, actually true. Very yeah. true. Yeah. I, and, uh, you know, yes. And when he taught soccer, it was team, right? And, um, and, even when he taught, you know, the lessons in racing for me, it was, it was, he really played up the team part of it. He's like, you might be the driver, but think of all the people who are right there with you. They might not be in the cockpit, but they're right there with you getting the car ready They're you know, they're bleeding for you, you know, yeah, and they're not bleeding for you. They're bleeding for the team. This is all a team, right. you know? Well, let's talk a little bit about CXC. Yeah. Now, are those your initials? They or? are my initials. Okay. All right. I, I figured as much, or it was like C by C. I wasn't yeah. really sure, but that's cool. What's your middle name? My middle name is Xi'an. It's Chinese. Yeah. Now, okay. So how did your parents go with the Chinese <laughs> middle name? So my dad, I think suffers from the same thing that I do where he gets uh, bored easily, <laughs> right? And wants to move on to the next thing or did then. Um, and at the time he was a, he was doing documentaries in China, um, after he stopped acting and he, he put aside the motorsport stuff for a brief period and said, I want to do some documentary films in China. And he just got super absorbed into that. And he was traveling to China a lot. He took us to China a lot and, uh, and just decided to give me a Chinese middle name, taught me how to speak Chinese at the time. I've since Mandarin. forgotten all of it. Mandarin, yes. Yeah. yeah. Cool. That's awesome. One of the big turning points in my life was um, my dad kind of introduced me to the right people at Le Mans. And I went to go work at Le Mans, but as a pit reporter. No kidding. And, um, 
and it was kind of interesting being a junior open wheel driver, but being at Le Mans and not a driver. Right. That was interesting to do. Um, but being in the mix with all a lot of the drivers I knew and was racing carts with and, you know, a, a while back. Um and kind of seeing what the big show is all about and having the inside, being a pit reporter, you can go anywhere you want. Um, and kind of seeing how it worked and yeah, it was, it was the big time. Right. Um, and after the first year I came back and kind of renewed my like, okay, if this is what I want to do, I've got to put my head down and I've really got to take this very, very seriously. Sure. Um, and I, I knew uh, Bob Bondurant through my father. Okay. Um, and I kind of, I, I, I literally wrote an email to Bob Bondurant and said, can I come work for your school? Um, and, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to be an instructor. This is going to be great. And he wrote back and he's like, yeah, you can come be a, a, a tire technician. And I was like, okay, that sounds interesting. Or what is, he said, what does he that even involve? Say come, he said, come interview to be a tire technician. Now, what does that involve? <laughs> well, to me, a tire I'm technician. thinking Le Mans, tire technicians are like, you know, tire engineers. And, and I'm like, okay, that's a kind of an interesting place to put me. So I went out and I interviewed uh, with Bob and the shop manager and the shop manager goes, okay, here's where you're going to work. And he takes me to the back, like garage and it's just, you know, floor to ceiling tires. And he's like, you're going to be the guy changing all these tires. I was going to say, you're just mounting them on yeah. wheels. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And it's 110 degrees outside. Cause we're in Phoenix. Cause Bondurant's in Phoenix. I was like, okay, I guess this is what I'm going to do. And I was like, well, you know, maybe I'll just work my way up quickly and, and we'll get going. And so you took the job. Oh, I took the job. Yeah. And, uh, that was a culture shock for me to move out to Phoenix and a temperature shock. And, uh, and I worked harder there than I have ever. And since probably ever worked in my life. I mean, I think I was up to, and I was the only tire technician for the entire school. Okay. No so, you know, that's a fleet of 350 cars. So I was doing pro and not all of them are running at the same time, but I was probably doing 250 to 300 tires a day. So, I mean, from the moment I got there now, granted there were only two tire sizes and wheel sizes that I was changing. So you could leave the machine on the same settings and you could right, you know, flip them very quickly. Yep. yep. Um, but physically that was hard. And I was trying to do karting while I was there too. And they only have one kart track or at the time they only had one kart track in Phoenix. Um, and it wasn't the same kind of karting culture there. I mean, in Southern California, you have a really a long history of, of karting and there's lots of kart shops and kart tracks and you can be seen and, and so on and so forth there. You're kind of out in the sticks. Um, so I was still karting still trying to make the open wheel thing work, but I mean, you don't get paid anything as a tire technician, but I did work my way up, um, piece by piece by piece until eventually I was teaching. Um, but you know, I was never making enough to really pay for testing, which was the biggest thing. I wasn't getting enough seat time in cars. Um, and that's a pretty big deal in racing. Like you mentioned, you know, with soccer or ball sports, you know, it's pretty easy to practice. You can just go to a park and sometimes you don't even have to go to a park and you can just learn and learn and learn and learn. But with motorsports, 
it requires a lot of money and a lot of time and, uh, and space and space. <laughs> yeah. And I happened to work at a racing school, but there wasn't the level of access that you would think, you right, know? Right. Um, and you know, I wasn't driving the cars that I would be race or that I was racing. So, um, I started, uh, you know, to segue back to my childhood, um, my father being a, a journalist, we always had computers in the house. Even, for, I mean, my earliest memories, I still remember like these gigantic DOS machines, right? Because he was a writer, he was writing, you know, he, he didn't use a typewriter, he used a computer. So I was playing with computers you know, f since I was a wee little one, IBM PC Junior. Oh yeah, yeah. I had pre, one pre, uh, you know, like Capros and things like that that didn't have hard drives that had you know big floppies that you had to tr you know flip back and forth. Um, and you know, to keep me interested, he would give me a game. You know, and those games at first were just text-based games, and then eventually they were graphics-based games. And then I remember the first racing game that we got; I was just blown away. It was all black, you know, or green and white, I should say. <laughs> you know, and then it was color, and then so on and so forth. But I remember, you know, being there and doing that all the time, and it was just entertainment, right? By the time I got to Bondurant those games became more and more accurate. And I remember, th I remember the first time I played a game and I thought, whoa, that car did what I expected it to do. You know, like that is what it would do in real life. Um, and it was playing a game called uh, Viper Racing. <laughs> you know, it's really ancient now. But, and I had a, the, one of the first force feedback steering wheels, a Microsoft force feedback wheels i think it was called force pro or something like that and i was so impressed with it i thought wow this is really good i had the thing clamped to my desk you know and i was like well okay you know the i was racing pro mazda at the time which is a formula car and you're in a very laid down position in that car and i remember thinking okay this is cool what if I took my pedals and steering wheels and put them in a laid down configuration and I got like an old seat from one of the formula Fords at work. Um, and I just nailed together some two by fours and put them kind of in the proper position and then put the monitor right in front of the steering wheel. And I remember the first time I sat in that, I was like, Whoa, that made a huge difference to my perception to this game just being in the right seating position generally, right? And then I'd play a whole bunch and I'd go, you know, and I'd learn the tracks that I was going to go to if they had them in the game. Even though I was driving the wrong car, I was driving a Viper Street car, but at least I could learn the track, right? And And then I thought, okay, well, you know, but the problem is these pedals are just little springy things on plastic, you know, so I took them apart and I looked at them and I'm like, oh, I understand how this works. It's just a, a, a lever that's moving a potentiometer with a spring. And, I, and the reason why I knew how it worked is because the data system in my race car worked exactly the same way. You know, the pedals hooked up to a potentiometer or an encoder. And instead of telling the car what to do, it's telling the data what you're doing. Right. So I was like, oh, that makes sense to me. OK, how can I make this pedal the first thing I want to do is make the brake pedal stiffer, you know, because just this little squishy thing wasn't doing it for me. And in a formula car, I mean, you're leg pressing as hard as possible. So this was all mimicking the real life experience, but almost just by you're stumbling into these things. Exactly. Or, or you I'm never totally really stumbling into it. You never really had the, the plan, if you will, no. to say, 
I want to make a quote simulator out of this. No, I just want my just game want next to step. feel more real. Yeah, and when I achieved that next step and it did what I wanted it to do, I was like, this is fantastic. I could do it to the next thing. It just emboldened me, right? It's like, oh, well, I can do that. I just achieved this. Let me just move on. And I just did it in little tiny steps, piece by piece by piece. Now, were there other companies already doing this that you were exposed to? Or So at the time, there were only companies that were making bits and pieces, right? Like there's a company, you know, there were companies that specialized in the steering wheels. And again, at the time, it was all gigantic companies just making consumer level entertainment things right there was nobody really taking it seriously wasn't professional grade no it was meant for gaming at home um so i had to professionalize their product or mount it in certain way or so on and so forth i had to keep modifying and modifying and modifying to get what i wanted. now were you ever reaching out to the microsoft's of the world saying this should be (laughs) this way okay got it no who i was reaching out to was the chassis engineers my chassis engineers my race engineers uh the the fabricators at bondurant because for me it was i just need to do this next little step and i don't know how to do that thing yeah you know like I had to ask my race engineer, you know, how the telemetry worked and, you know, figure out how potentiometers work and, and so on and so forth. And then for the fabricators at work, you know, when I took the step from two by fours to, oh, I should make a metal frame. Well, now I have to weld it. You know, I, I probably shouldn't mention this, but I was like, you know, they would kindly let me use the welders and things at work, you know. That's and, awesome. Um, after hours when no one was around. It's long enough now. I'm sure they don't work there anymore. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know, but I would, you know, secretly use the, you know, tools and things like that. Um, never materials, obviously. Um, but, you know, just to get what I needed, you know, because I couldn't do it any other way. I couldn't test as much as everybody else that I was racing against. You know, I couldn't, um, I didn't have the money to build huge expensive things. So I eventually I got this thing into a state where it was really good and no one had ever seen anything like that and no one really saw it. And I started talking to my race engineers about it and they're like, wow, that, you know, the more they heard about it, they're like, that's pretty cool. And then, you know, one came over to my apartment and saw it and was like, wow, that's actually really cool. Um, so what year is this? This would have been like 2002 or three. And then it kind of just, then, then I got, um, then the whole Bondurant thing ended and I moved back to LA. I just, I needed to kind of restart my life. And I thought I was going to reboot my life, you know, and I, uh, became a systems administrator, uh, at a visual effects company, uh, called digital domain. Um, cause a couple of my friends worked there and, and it was a cool, fun dot com kind of place to work. Yep. Um, and, but I, I never really let the racing thing go. I went, I kind of stepped back to karting. Um, and, uh, I, and as such, the simulator kept getting better and better and better. Um, but a lot of my private coaching clients from Bondurant, um, were still in touch and I was still working with, um, and they saw, one of them saw the chassis, the, the racing sim that I built myself and said, look, can you build me one of these? Oh, wow. And I was like, uh, sure, of course I can. And I'll make it better. 
and, and were they local to LA at that yeah, time? They were local. Cool. So you didn't have to like ship it or yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and he, and then all of a sudden he goes, Hey, and you know, he's a business owner, um, and owns a very large company, um, and started it from scratch. And he's like, Hey, I've got a friend who's a hockey player, a pro hockey player who also wants one. I was like, Oh great. Two is easier to build than one. Cause I can just build them side by side, you know? Um, and I built these two and, you know, delivered them and installed them for them. And they were over the moon about it. And the hockey player just thought it was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And, but my friend who's the business owner said, you know, you should really think about starting a company to do this. This is something that no one else is doing. And you're doing at a level that no one will be able to catch up to you for a while. Wow. And he became my business mentor. Um, kind of coaching me along the way on how to spin things up small. And the first five or six chassis were built out of a shed in the back of a house that I built, you know, or the shed I built in the back of a house that I was renting. Um, and I started up on, I think it was $23,000 in wow. total. Now, was he contributing to that? No. Um, he... Uh, then the conversation never got there, you know, got um, it. instead a friend of the family became an angel investor and, okay. uh, and she brought another friend as well. Um, and they were, they owned an accounting firm and that seemed like a good fit because that's they could the take side care of the accounting too. <laughs> yeah. Right. And this would be a continuing theme in my company is like, realize the things you don't know and make good hires for, those positions right you know yeah and yeah we started by building two chassis um and they became our showroom chassis or demo chassis uh and they lived at my house and i took them i, I mean my dad kind of helped in a way that he introduced me to the people at the peterson museum and we held a big event there awesome you know and we entertained all their friends and then uh i knew from my racing days and and also he knew as well some IndyCar teams as well, and I would drag these things out to to the Long Beach Grand Prix and put them up in hospitality suites. Sure, you know? yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, like in a hotel, you mean? No, no, hospitality suites oh, at like Long Beach trackside. Track. Yeah, yeah, like the yeah, yeah. team or sponsors hospitality suites. Yep. Um, so were you in conjunction with any sponsors in order to make that happen? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, the pitch was, Hey, I will entertain your guests. If you give me a spot to set up this racing simulator. Smart. Um, and, and that was kind of the pitch with the Peterson museum. It's like, we're going to have this big event for our private members who are all the, you know, very wealthy racers, yeah. you know, um, I will entertain them with our simulators if you give me some space, <laughs> you know. That's cool. Um, and we did this a lot in, at the beginning. Um, now, do they have a simulator at the Peterson? I can't remember. Now? Yeah. Oh, they have like Forza little console things. It, but it lives there? Yeah. Not ours. But that's not yours? No. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we did that a lot and we just kind of spread the word organically. For sure. Yeah. You know? Um, and that really has become our thing, right? Is, is like, you know, it's all word of mouth. You know, um, I run into racers now, the IndyCar racers now that I met, you know, way back then in 2006, 2005, um, that were like, is this the thing I tried briefly at Long Beach? And you're like, yeah. And they're like, 
I didn't realize that that's what you know became CXC because now I know CXC from everything you know and it's like yeah that was us <laughs> yeah. that's incredible I'd like to take a minute to thank you for listening to the Standard Age podcast. It's certainly been a lot of fun sharing each guest's story, even during the craziest of times over the last year. The good news is it's allowed me to further focus on some of the elements that make Standard Age possible. I've done a ton of product development, some items for well over a year. If you'd like to support the podcast, the least expensive way is to simply rate and review the show on whatever platform you're on. Further, you can visit standard-h.com where you can purchase the brand's apparel or directly support the podcast under the accessories tab. I can't thank you guys enough for listening to the show and for all of your support, especially through social media. It's been so much fun interacting with you and all of the great feedback has been wonderful, so thank you. So many of you are into watches, whether you are just starting to collect them or if you're already in deep in discussing the extensive finishing of the movements. In fact, my most listened to episodes have been watch-related. For those of you interested in independent watch companies, Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California might just have what you're looking for. Previous listeners may be familiar with owner Tim Jackson from episode one of the Standard Age podcast. He and his team are certainly a wealth of information while offering incredible customer service. Tim and his team are quite literally made up of family and friends, so I'm confident you'll feel very much a part of their community even if it's your first visit. Of course, if California is out of reach, definitely visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. Or visit Tim's blog, Independent in Time, for a deeper watch dive. Now let's get back to the show. So when did that kind of transition happen from, you know, the hospitality suite to like a bona fide big business? You're targeting teams, you're or high end, high yeah. net worth individuals, that kind of thing. Yeah, I I think that there was no real tipping point, right? Um, it just grew, you know, as our customers, as we had one or two or three or four customers, I mean, I think in our first year we sold one simulator, our second year we sold three and, and then it just kind of grew and grew and grew and grew. Um, and it was a mix of like that word of mouth thing. Um, but also, you know, we, we very early on knew that, that our customers would be all over the world and that that wasn't going to cut it. So we built a really nice website and tried to make it as clean as possible and, you know, and try and explain this complex thing as easily as possible. Um, and as simply as possible. Can you do that right now? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a very visual thing, right? Right. Sure. I, you can talk all you want, but as soon as you see one, then you get it, you know, because it's all about how it's made, what it's made from, that it's not, you know, an entertainment device. I mean, you, you know, like, I mean, you can look at one right now and go, that's not really an entertainment device. <laughs> you know, that is a for real training tool using all the parts from a real race car and so on. You know. So for those listening, since this isn't a yeah. visual medium, <laughs> so it's basically machined metal with a base. Yeah. With a race car, like with a race seat yeah. that's mounted on what looks like pneumatic devices Uh, electromechanical actually okay yeah so linear actuators okay yeah so i mean this goes to our core philosophy of um it's 
function over form any day because the majority of our customers are using them as a training tool, right? Um, So, you know, it's first about how accurate it is, right? And that's all the haptic feedbacks or the the physical feedback devices. Right. And there's more than just a motion system. That's the most visual one that everybody always picks out because you can see it, right? But it goes to vibratory control systems that are, you know, triggering things all over everything that you touch in the simulator or independent vibratory devices, uh, seatbelt tensioners that compress the seatbelts under braking, really high-end force feedback, you know, direct drive, very powerful, but also high fidelity uh, force feedback steering systems. Uh, the brake pedal is a true hydraulic system. It has a master and a slave cylinder, um, and that's a, a passive haptic feedback device, right? Um, to even other passive haptic feedback devices, like the fact that uh, we use magnetic shift paddles that have a very specific feel, you know, and shape and size, and the steering wheels are a certain shape and size and feel, and the seat and the type of belts that we use. Basically, anything that you have a physical interaction, no matter how small or how big, we are going to that degree to try and make sure that it is exactly like your type of racing. And you develop all of this stuff here. Yes, in-house. So now. you do software? Software, hardware. Hardware. Delivery, installation, aftercare, support, right. all of it. So walk us through briefly what it's like developing this type of software. Because it is a, a video game of sorts. It, yeah. it You have a screen in front of you. Sure. Um, even though it's for professional training and, mm-hmm. and, and such. What is the software development like? So uh, we should probably be more specific as the type of software we develop, right? So we don't develop the engines themselves, uh, you know, the simulation engines. Um, a lot of cases we're pulling off-the-shelf engines, like things that you've probably heard of, like iRacing or Seto Corsa, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, our software development really goes where those end, right? If it's a custom car or track or physics or user interface or what drives the physical parts of the simulators, how that software communicates with our hardware, the middleware that goes between there, um, to venue management control systems, uh, to customer service tools like the simulator is always monitoring its own health hardware and software-wise and reporting home to tell us if something's going wrong or if something needs to be updated or whatever. Um, We develop all of that part here. And that Um, communication back to home, if you will, is all through the cloud? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very cool. And that's really born from like the type of customer that we have, right? We have what I like to say the three pillars, right? We have our professional or semi-professional training client, right? And then we have, and that's like I said, the bulk of our customers. Um, Then we have what we call the big boy toy market, right? And they really want what the pros are using, but they just want to use it a different way, right? They want to use it for entertainment. They want something that is just so cool and nobody has, and they want four of them lined up in their house, in their their man cave. And a right? place to set their beer. Exactly. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? But they want the same level, so it's the, still the same product. Yeah. Um, And then we have our commercial division and our commercial division does like promotional simulators or location based entertainment, you know, facilities. 
Um, now, are those so, respectively the levels of business that you contribute towards? Yeah. Like, are the big boy toys buying more than, say, the commercial? Um, for now, I see the trend of commercial entertainment facilities going to, you know, traditional back in the day, they were all just like arcade games, right? right but then right. arcade games didn't become enough. Like the public wanted more, right? Something more elevated. More real. More real, right? So they just kept leveling up and leveling up and leveling up until now they've reached our level of realism, right? And they, that market is growing exponentially. So we're seeing more and more and more of that. So uh, who do you consider to be your competition? At our level, we're kind of lucky in the sense that we don't really have competition. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the biggest problem we run into is that we have customers. This is um, a product that is not easily understood by someone who's not in this industry, right? Makes sense. So when I get a customer asking me to compare us to another simulator, what they're really asking us to do is compare our class of simulator to another class of simulator. And I always use the analogy of, okay, let's think of it this way. You are a person from the 1700s and you're looking at a picture of a Ford Focus, you know, <laughs> red on the internet. And then you're looking at a picture of a 488 Ferrari red on the internet. You know, to you, that's the same car, you know. If you're from the 1700s. If you're from the 1700s, right? Now, all of us know cars, especially car guys really know cars. So we go, oh, well, we know what the difference is, right? Yes, they're both cars. They both have four wheels. That car is way cheaper and, or I should say way more economical, right? Right. right. But it has nowhere near the performance level, the build quality, the aftercare support. I mean, everything else is on a totally different scale. That doesn't make the Ford Focus a bad car. It's just aimed at a different market. But you and I and most people these days know that inherently that those cars are totally different, right? With simulators looking at pictures on the internet, that is not very easy to, to figure out. I see. So I end up having to have the class discussion, right? It's like, look, those are great simulators, but they're made from consumer level equipment. You know, it's plastic steering wheels and, you know, the, the, if they have motion, they're kind of entertainment motion that's much cheaper to reproduce and so on and so forth. You're never going to get the level of quality of service and, you know, they're not going to come install it for you and teach you everything that goes along with it. But it's also going to be a third the price, you know, because that's what they're aiming for. It is a get what you pay for kind exactly, of mentality. Exactly. Yeah. So how many employees are you up to now totally? Uh, I think right now we're at like 28. 28 employees. Say. Yeah. Okay. So we're and still a very small company. Yeah, sure. So the bulk of them are in customer service or development or... Oh, no, they're spread all... Well, actually, I should say customer service is probably the largest department because customer service encompasses a lot of different subdivisions. Customer service can be remote support. It can be on-site support. It can be the install teams. Uh, it can be the rentals division. You know, so on-site support, how does that work when somebody's in Dubai driving one of these things? It works exactly how you think it works. <laughs> Are you so they're literally on they're a literally jet? Literally on a jet out. Yeah. Our install and remote support team and our rentals team are, you know, 
uh, on the road all the time. Do you have different levels of support? That Do you have like a subscription model where they will fly your person on their private jet? Yeah, <laughs> yeah kind of. Like um, we do have different levels of support uh, depending on the type of client, commercial, you know, home use or, you know, professional training use, you know? Um, and then, yeah, we are just onboarding now a set of, uh, subscription models after the, uh, after the standard warranty runs out. Now, what is the warranty? Uh, for home use, it's a two year bumper to bumper hardware, software, doesn't matter. Just anything. Um, no questions asked, we like to call it. That's great. <laughs> um, and for commercial, it's always been a subscription yearly. First year is included with the purchase. Cool. Um, but now we're getting customers. And then after, so for customers who traditionally ran, ran out of warranty, we just switched to time and materials. Look, we're still here for you 24-7, but we, we're just going to charge you hourly and for the materials. But a lot of customers have said, like, you know, we love your support so much we're not really using it because something's gone wrong. It's because we want, you know, the simulator is capable of doing so many things or I want to change cars and tracks and, or whatever. I just want to be handheld this whole time. I want to continue that service. You wow. Know? Yeah. So, well, you guys do hardware development here too. Yep. You were polite and gracious <laughs> enough to show me the special projects room. Yeah. You've got 3d printers, laser cutters. Yeah. What what limitations do you have here? Oh, we have plenty of limitations. But, you know, as we get bigger, we can start to have tools and processes and staff that can specialize, right? And that's really the key. Um, I mean, we we do a lot of development, both for special projects, bespoke projects for customers uh, outside of our normal production stuff. But we also do a lot of product development as well. Um, on a continuous basis, right? Technology moves so quickly and we learn new things or we gain new capabilities that we always want to stay on the bleeding edge. Um, well, how long have you been in this space? It's a, I mean, how many square feet is this? Uh, this facility is 20,000 square feet. Yeah, I mean, it's a proper yeah. airplane hangar for that We matter. have another <laughs> one as well uh, that's uh, 5,000 square feet. So how long has the business been operating at this level? We moved into those two split building scenario uh, two and a half years ago. Okay. And then before that, we had a 10,000 square foot single facility. And then before that, we had a, th- a 3,000 plus 2,500. We were already bursting out of that one. And you've always just reinvested in the company or have, yeah. you, have you needed to take on any investment since? No, no. We've always just reinvested in the company. That's incredible. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So you're still on a growth trajectory, it seems. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Uh, and then yeah. commercials growing, I guess. Yep. What um, What's the hardest part of your job? Like, what's the hardest part of running this thing? The hardest part of my job is learning to be a bigger and bigger company and how that works. Scaling. Yeah, scaling is the biggest thing. Um, is your accountant helping with that? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's helping with that, right? Right, right? I mean, you know... We had, I mean, seven years ago, we had four employees and, you know, life was so much easier, you know, so you've and grown less four customers. times the size in the last four years. Yeah. Yeah. 
we're it's accelerate the growth is accelerating so, so it's almost exponential almost yeah i try not to use that word right yeah right. yeah <laughs> I don't, I, sorry i don't want to jinx you either yeah. but like <laughs> but i'm just kind of thinking that like i mean that's insane yeah it is it's and and learning how to service our customers as that customer base grows so quickly and maintaining that level of customer service. Um, but also just from the employee standpoint, I mean, you know, like now we have an HR manager, and right? Like, and, and now my HR manager is constantly like checking me, you know, and it's like, this is a weird experience, <laughs> you know, what prompted that hire? Just um, the number of people now hired. Yeah, the number of people now hired and the type of questions that employees start asking, right? And going and and it no longer can be just like a side conversation. Oh yeah, yeah, do that this way and oh, now we have to write down policies and oh, now we're writing down a lot of policies, you know. I can leave this in or out. It's your choice. But no. like do you offer full benefits and we all do. that stuff? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm sure that sort of um I don't know, matriculation process going from four employees to 28 with full-time benefits and yeah. stuff. Like, is that part of the reason you hire an HR manager? I would imagine. That's one of the reasons you, you hire an HR manager for a lot of reasons. Yeah, sure, sure. And, and, and Liability. all of them are really important. Um, you know, at first we tried to outsource it, but you know, wasn't cost effective it wasn't cost effective and you weren't really getting that level of service that you get with like a, a person who lives and breathes it here every day <laughs> yeah know? i was gonna say because then they're not down the hall either I don't yeah think, exactly you know? and just... that's really what our employees want is like someone to go ask a silly question to you know people think of hr as this thing where it's like oh it's it's the you know what happens when things go wrong it's I'm learning now, and I thought that too. I'm learning now that HR is really about like clarifying things ahead of time, so that everybody feels comfortable. You know, going, oh, that's how things work. Uh, there's no ambiguity. Ambiguity, ambiguity yeah, for sure. <laughs> there. Yeah. How important is corporate culture to you? Uh, it's really important. I mean, we're still a small company and I always want to feel like that, you know, um, it's very important, especially in what we do, because what we all do here is really our, what we love. Right. And, um, that has to extend to not only the things that you're working on, but the people that you work with and the way the company is operated. Um, what are some things that are specific to CXC that are culture related? Um, I'm, well, being small is that I get to personally be connected to every single employee um, and kind of share direction and concepts. Um, that is really kind of cool to be able to still do. And I'm sure the employees love that as well. I hope they do, <laughs> you know, because yeah. I'm sure that symbiosis, that, yeah, that totally. sort of, uh, mutually beneficial that you yeah. can touch everything, but then they have access to you as well. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's, what's wonderful about a small company really. And 
not only that, but the projects we get to work on, I mean, we're all builders of some sort here, right? We're all creators of some sort. And right, the right. projects we get to work on, yeah, we have our production product that we continuously develop, which is fantastic. That keeps things new and fresh and exciting to work on. But then with special projects and the clientele and the projects that go through there are always exciting and new. And for a creator to always be working on something new and exciting that's fantastic, you know, and to have a direct connection to that exact client and what they want and how they like it and how they use it and, and all that sort of stuff. I think that's really important as well. From a product standpoint, like you've told me prior to, to recording that mm -hmm. like everything is so dialed with these machines, everything down to like, you know, the pedal pressure that actually you did yeah. mention earlier about like your first iteration of one of these. It's so real like what keeps you motivated because pedal pressure is one thing, right? Like early days, that's like a phenomenal attribute about yeah. one of these things. Yeah. But now that all that's been done, yeah. like how, what motivates you? Like how do these machines, how can they get better? Is it like oh, graphics wow. cards? Is it like what, it, what, <laughs> yeah. how do you advance I mean, you got to remember as, as a, as someone who builds these and I'm sure everyone else has this too. And someone who races, which most of us do here, there's a list of a thousand things that our simulator can't do in our heads. Really? <laughs> oh yeah. What's one that's like your pet peeve? <laughs> um, oh, man, picking one out is really hard. Um, but I mean, I, I you know I would love to do like sustained G forces, and I you know. And even from the usability standpoint, right? I mean, in the end, these are incredibly complex ecosystems that are these simulators, right? Yeah. But yet our clients want them to be as easy to use as an iPhone, you know? So just that dance of, of getting this really accurate, highly complex thing to be as easy to use from the user perspective as an iPhone is really complicated you know and requires a lot of engineering on the hardware and on the software side you know so it's not just the realism side but it's the ownership you know usability side that's you know really really important too sure so i mean there's so many things even in that department that i'm like you know how do we automate this or make this so that the customer never has to think about it or you know all of those things it's it's a never-ending kind of list of things and then once you solve that one thing you can discover a new thing you know and it just constantly goes forever you know which yeah. is and it's so funny for you know because i i tell this to customers all the time i you know it's well it doesn't do everything but then they get out of the simulator and they're like i can't imagine where else you can go with this you know it's like yeah but you're not the creator of it you know it's like the painter who looks at their painting and goes oh, i see all the mistakes and all the things i could do on the next one next to the people who are just admiring the painting going, this is perfect. How do you make this any better? <laughs> you know? Right. Right. No, that's, that's a really great analogy. So do you battle any licensing issues, be it car design or like, how does that work? Like, how do you have the access to you swiped through this wall mounted menu <laughs> basically of thousands of cars? Yeah. What, What's the legality behind using all this? Well, so that comes back to we are using off-the-shelf engines. I see. That come with their own licensing built in for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cars, right? And then when we are asked to create a car 
for a customer, it's a one-time use thing. Sometimes, a lot of the times, it's for the car manufacturer, right? Or their racing team or whatever. Mm -hmm. And if it's for a race car driver, you know, it doesn't have to say BMW or, or Ferrari on it as long as it behaves like their race car. What do they care? Right. You know, so we can create white label stuff on an individual basis all the time because the customer doesn't care. And, you know, the, the licensor is not going to care either. Cool. Well, back to the machines just real quick because I failed to, to ask you mm-hmm. earlier. What are the quote unquote trim levels of each like, what do you get for what? So for our Motion Pro 2, our production line product, um, they all start from a common core system, right? So, and, and we call it the base model, right? Sure. And that base model is completely turnkey, ready to run. All you need to provide is space, power, and internet, right, as a customer. It comes with hardware, software, installation, training, aftercare support, everything you need, Right. And that trim level is a single screen, full motion, same pedals, same steering wheel, same everything, um, but it's single screen. And then from there, you can obviously add different types of screens. You can add VR. What is the base model cost? Uh, the base model is uh, 57000 Okay. Turkey. And then level two takes you to what? So there is no level from that point on. Okay. From that point on, it's options that you can add a la carte i see on our website we do have some three pre-configured systems and that's for people who are like i don't want to think about individual options i just want the all-in or kind of the middle of the road or the base right. model you right know? right but really you can achieve that with any you know we have a configuration tool on our website that walks you through step by step you can achieve any of those configurations so it's like specking totally your 911 online exactly cool exactly um, so from there, you're just choosing options like display options, different sizes, VR, uh, body work for those who are really into the like looks of it. We have full carbon fiber body kits and stitch suede covers and, <laughs> and all insane. that sort of stuff. Um, we have control options as well. We have, uh, we use quick disconnect steering wheels and a steering wheel feel is a big thing, like shape, size, type of electronics, different types of shift paddles and buttons and so on and so forth. So we have a whole range of different types of steering wheels. This sim comes standard with what we call our GT steering wheel, which is the round steering wheel, what you would find typically in a GT car, GT race car, right? Right, right. A carbon fiber shift paddles, of buttons and, and knobs and so on. Um, and so then, these are different options you can get for your simulator. Exactly. So, for example, what is the upcharge from circular to more of that F1 shape? So that's our formula wheel. Um, it has a totally different electronics package and steering wheel, obviously. It sure. also adds clutch paddles, like a Formula One car. Right. Um, and that, I believe, is 2300 uh, add-on. And okay. they are quick disconnect, so you still have the GT wheel. You just swap back and forth now, depending on the type of car you're driving. So when you upgrade, you're actually just getting another on. steering yeah, wheel. You're just adding on. It's not in lieu of. Exactly. I see. In that Very case, cool. Yeah. Very cool. And then, you know, we have stock car wheels and, and uh, um, vintage wheels and cart wheels. You name it, you know. Um, and then customers a lot of times have us build bespoke steering wheels 
that are exactly the same parts in their race car or even street car. I've had someone bring me their P1 steering wheel. No way. So yeah. I was going to say, how does that work? They bring the wheel in. They typically bring it. the wheel uh, in or or we work with the manufacturer directly. In in that case, uh, we worked with McLaren directly. Uh, the CEO of McLaren is a customer of ours, so he has multiple simulators. That's helpful. Um, and, and, you know, we worked with Ferrari and, and oh, gosh, we've worked with all of them now. But yeah, we they bring us the steering wheel. He, he you know, with a streetcar steering wheel, it's actually more complex because they have an airbag in the middle. Um, so we have to kind of de-airbag the simulator or the steering wheel rather uh, without destroying that front face. And typically, that front face is actually integrated into the airbag uh, system. So how often does the CEO of McLaren or the representative from Ferrari come with? new requests on like what should or shouldn't be in the simulator from a hardware perspective anything like um, do they offer that kind of feedback they do yeah mclaren especially we worked quite a bit with and ironically having nothing to do with our relationship with the ceo who was completely independent and he wasn't even aware um, so the company reached out oh yeah what kinds of feedback are they giving you um they I mean, we get all kinds of things, right? So typically it's either customer driven. I have this very, very special customer that I need to really, really take care of. I see. On either the motorsports or just like the person who owns all the, the entire line, <laughs> you know? Yep. Um, or it can be from the racing division side that's like, I really need this for whatever reason. It can be from the promotional side we need we want to use your simulators to promote our product in some way or it's worked from the other side where they've quite often oems very high-end oems have come to us and said we would like you to develop a white label simulator for us that we can sell under our brand oh interesting not to normal customers but to only our super super elite customers. that sounds like something koenigsegg would do <laughs> yeah yeah well, they all do it, honestly. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. You drive what looks like a Mark VI Golf R. I do, yeah. How's that? I love it. <laughs> I think it's the biggest bang for your buck. I 100% agree. I'm a little biased because we have carbon steel gray. Yeah. We have the same color. Oh, wow. And they're parked next to each <laughs> other oh, outside. Oh, yeah. wow. Mine's not an R. Oh, but okay. <laughs> I have a Mark VII. Oh, cool. And it's had some work done to it. Oh, very cool. So it's it's more fun than stock. Yeah, I love that car for so many reasons. Have you always been a Volkswagen guy? Or? I haven't. I've kind of, I'm kind of brand agnostic, you know. Um, I mean, I, I learned how to drive a stick uh, in a 1968 uh, Mini Cooper S. Oh, that's funny. That my dad bought brand new. <laughs> yeah. I learned on an 84 5 Series BMW. Oh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. So stiff clutch pedal back then. Yeah. The mini, especially the Cooper S mini has like a very stiff. I now own that car. You passed it on to me. No kidding. Yeah. That's amazing. So it's still a one family car. <laughs> you know. The handling on those things is just insane. Oh, so, I mean, I've always been into pointy cars, you know, the ones that feel very direct. Um, but I'm also kind of practical in that sense that like I have race cars, I drive race cars. I don't need my street car to be a race car. That's so common you amongst know. race car drivers. Yeah. They don't, yeah. they don't care because we do it elsewhere and do it much better. Right. Cause uh, you know, a race car is a purpose built thing. It is 
only good on a racetrack and in the right conditions and so on and so forth, right? To me, trying to change my street car into a race car only makes it worse for the street, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it is kind of funny because you consider like a McLaren P1 or something yeah. and you look at the roads in Los Angeles yeah. and if you're driving down Sunset, you're going to need a front splitter probably within a week. Oh, yeah, for <laughs> sure. And it's just the little things, right? Like, I mean, the reasons I love my my Golf R is it's pointy when I want it to be. It it has a little bit of power. Um, it's a manual, which I love. Of course. Um, and, you know, the suspension is stiff without being jarring. Right. Um, and it's quick without being hard to drive you know like power wise like the power band is really easy to modulate i can cruise if i want to cruise and if i put my foot in it it goes okay i haven't yeah. driven your car but third gear in my car is the yeah. best i mean it goes from i mean 24 miles an hour to 80 yeah like it's such a long gear yep but it gets you everywhere yeah totally and i love the way it looks it's understated but yet pretty elegant for a hatch right sure and it's a hatchback so i am you, constantly going to like home depot and throwing a bunch of stuff in the back of it and it's no big deal and i you know i have two boys you know when my youngest started uh kid carts um i could fit the kid cart in the back of that car and go karting with that car yeah. you know yeah it's it's great do you have a, a favorite car of all time no, I have many favorites. And my, my boys ask me that all the time. What's your favorite car? I'm like, I don't really have what, what one. Are, what are your top three? Um, I'm really into, I love McLarens. A couple of the McLarens I really, I like, I love the 650s, especially the, the LTs. LT, sure. Yeah. Um, 720s, okay. I, I, I think it's too much. <laughs> I, see, I love that car. But I love the 650 too, to yeah. be fair. Um, I even like the, the, the fives, uh, quite a bit as well. I think bang for buck, they're pretty good. Um, I, I like uh, some vintage Porsches, um, a little bit, not to the level that some people have taken it. Right. Um, I love my mini Cooper. Uh, the original minis were just the ultimate pocket rockets. They're so cool. Yeah. What color is yours? Blue and white. Oh, great. White roof. White roof. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And my boys love it as well. They love whipping around the canyons and that. It's car. like a real life toy. It is. I mean, totally it's is. totally yeah. the adult toy. And of course, toy. everyone who sees you smiles. My dad called it the smile car because it makes everyone smile. That's awesome. You know? so Whether good. you know what it is or not, it's so crazy looking. Now, do you drive that fairly frequently? I do now, yeah. Now, what's service and maintenance like on that? Uh, I do it all myself. Well, not all myself. Some of the heavy duty stuff I take to like a mini, you know, specialist, specialist yeah. the guy, right. some Everybody's guy, got a guy in the back of, you know, yeah, yeah. that's cool. <laughs> well, what's next for you? What's next for CXC? CXC. <laughs> um, I, you know, we're like, I was telling you earlier, we're in a pretty big development cycle right now. Um, although we seem to be perpetually in one. <laughs> yeah. Um, but right now we're making a really, really big push for like a generational change, um, which is a long cycle. Um, I think that all three of our markets, all, all three of our pillars are growing rapidly. Um, they are 
uh, you know, you got the home entertainment guys, which are really starting to take off now. Instead of buying one, they're buying two or three or four. And, really, know, for their buddies to race. Well, yeah, because what's the best thing to do in racing? You don't always want to race against the computer, right? You know, you want to race against your friends. <laughs> yeah, you know? and they're putting four of these things in their house. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, what so? But then you know the motorsports side is growing equally, right? You have everyone from like the bottom, you know, tier spec Miata racer might be in our certified pre-owned category price level, right? Um, all the way up to you know people who are racing at Le Mans and, and such. That's right. You mentioned the the certified pre-owned. Usually, that's an expression you hear when talking about a car dealership. Mm -hmm. So, walk us through that. So people are flipping these things around, or they're just upgrading, or like what causes somebody to get oh, rid of? Oh, there's a whole stuff? host of reasons. I mean, you know, I get reasons mostly in the I'm moving to a new location where I can't take it. Got it. Uh, like I'm moving to Singapore, which has to have a tiny little apartment or right. I don't really want to put the simulator in my apartment, uh, to, uh, my father owned this and he passed away and I don't really care about it. So I want to move it on. Um, now do you have to do any treatment upgrade? Oh yeah. Stuff yeah. like that. Okay. So that's the certified or the certified pre-owned, uh, system is, uh, we send a technician out um, to completely tear it down and do a, a really detailed inspection and catalog everything. Um, if it needs repair, it gets repair. If we think it needs upgrade before selling, then we'll upgrade. Or like recovering the seat or something like that. Yeah, it's mostly electric stuff like our core systems, which include our PCs. They move very quickly and the software moves with it, right? So, you know, an eight-year-old, six-year-old system could probably benefit from a new core system. Um, Back to your iPhone yeah, analogy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the hardware typically doesn't, doesn't really have issues. And even the seats, I mean, they, they last forever. Uh, but Or a new VR-type system or new screens or whatever really kind of makes it more relevant to today. Um, as far as upgrades go. Uh, and then, yeah, we, we do all the listing, we do all the sales, we do all the pickup and, and new installation for the new customer. It's basically starting the new simulator sales process all over again. And then they also come with a limited warranty as well. So, you know, it's, you know, even our certified pre-owned systems, they, you know, they can, they can start at 25,000, which is a lot cheaper than a new simulator. Yeah, it's half, yeah. Um, but it's still a significant investment, right? And you want to know that that investment, if you're going to spend $25,000 on a simulator, you want to know that it's going to be at a level that's, that, you know, really that you're comfortable knowing that that technology is going to be good. This is a good investment. It's going to last me a while. I'm going to be covered by the company who manufactured this. In fact, they're going to be doing all the installation and training. They always have my back. That's great. You know? Knowing that it is somewhat of a, a high cost item, right? Mm -hmm. Do you offer financing, and or is it is that not an? You option? know, we almost never get asked for finance. In fact, it's only our commercial customers that ask us for financing, and it's usually because it's a business reason of some sort. You right, know, right. Um, and we do offer commercial financing. We have a partner that does commercial financing, um, but it's kind of been a non-issue on the home and and uh, professional training side, so. That's amazing. Yeah. 
Well, you're a fan of the 917, it seems. Yes. <laughs> it's specific to the Gulf livery? Yeah. yeah. In it, fact, our other facility has a gigantic wall of it. <laughs> you know. what, what is it you love about the 917? Well, I mean, I think of late recently, my father has just been telling me everything there is to know about Le Mans and the history of Le Mans. So, you know, I, I, I'm kind of immersed in that right now because of the book he's written and writing. Yep. Um, and I have a friend who uh, race for Porsche. Um, one of our development drivers here is Patrick Long. Oh, um, sure. So, yeah. um, and he's an old friend. I mean, we grew up karting together. So, oh, that's awesome. Um, now he's in Orange County, right? Newport. He is, yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you live close by? I do. Yeah. Oh, cool. I, I live in uh, Rancho Palos Verdes. Oh, sure. <laughs> And I moved there because it's the most like where I used to live uh, in Beverly Glen. E even, I guess, from a uh, topographical standpoint. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's super laid back and... I've got a really good friend that lives up there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. And I wanted that for my kids. You know, they ride their dirt bikes around and no one cares. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Very cool. Chris, I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been super fun. Thank you. Uh, where can people go to check more out? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, our website is uh, cxcsimulations.com. Um, our Facebook is cxcsimulations and uh, Instagram, same. And YouTube as well, if you want to see a lot of videos. Yeah, I, I encourage people to go to YouTube for sure. Yeah. The graphics are so realistic, just <laughs> like, well, borderline any game these days. But, yeah. Um, it's really, really impressive stuff. And um, I can't wait to check one out. Cool. Sounds good. All right, Chris. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay. Again, just a friendly reminder uh, and request, however, if you could go online and just rate and review this podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. Huge thanks goes out to Chris one more time for taking the time to be a guest on the podcast. Uh, as always, thanks to Super Beautiful and Jensen Reed for the theme track, and as well as to Clear Audio for the noise cancellation headphones. And I will catch you guys in another two weeks. Have a good one.